In this episode, you'll discover some strategies to build resiliency and go beyond resiliency and into anti-fragility in your children so that your kids and my kids are prepared to handle the stress of the quote-unquote real world. You're listening to The Parenting Junkie Show, the place to go to love parenting and to parent from love. I'm your host, Avital. Hi, I'm Avital. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I know there are a million other things you could do, and I am absolutely determined to make this a value-packed episode, just like every other episode, I really strive to pack the value so that you can get actionable steps. And today will be highly actionable. We're going to be talking about resiliency and anti-fragility and adaptiveness and all these different things that we want our children to have, but sometimes we're not sure how to get it for them. So if you're just meeting me for the first time, I'm a mindful parenting coach. My work is dedicated to empowering intentional parents who are probably imperfect, just like me, um, with tools to reclaim peace, presence, and play, and say goodbye to conflict, clutter, and chaos. So I study the ideas, I try them out, and I share them in a distilled fashion uh, that hopefully works really actionably for you. We're going to take a quick little break from this to announce our winner this week. You guys, if you would like to win one of my courses or products, then all you need to do is leave a review on iTunes. And if you're outside of the US, please snap a screenshot and share it with me on Instagram. You can tag me at Parenting Junkie in your stories, on your posts, or on Facebook. Because if it's outside the US, I just don't see it showing up in my iTunes. But if it's in the US, I do see it and I will enter you into the competition. Plus, the more times you do so, sharing, tagging, reviewing, the more times I will enter you because I'll just enter every time I see someone sharing. And then we randomly pick a winner and randomly pick a product of the Parenting Junkie Suite to offer you. So today I'm super excited because I am offering a prize of my meditation album. Did you guys know I have a meditation album? Yeah, if you like this podcast, you're pretty much going to love the meditation album. What you get there is seven downloadable, completely unique guided meditations to help you heal and repair after a hard day of parenting, guided meditations to help you as you fall asleep, as you mop toddler pee off the floor or pack up tiny lunch boxes. The idea is for you to feel soothed, centered, and reminded of your commitment to peaceful parenting, to rewire your brain so that a mindful, conscious presence becomes your default. And there are affirmations there to help you set intentions for the day ahead and meditations to manifest good behavior. Hold, you know better collaboration and cooperation with your child. And if you listen regularly, I am pretty sure you will see profound improvements in your approach to parenting. I made this album because I needed it and because I had such success with hypnobirthing and listening to hypnobirthing meditations, that really helped me gear up and learn to relax and trust my body for birth. But I needed to do the same type of meditating for parenting, which can I just say is sometimes harder than birth in some ways. So yeah, 
this is the prize for this week's lister and the person who has been selected by the random selector is multicultural motherhood multicultural motherhood over on instagram shared the parenting junkie podcast on her stories and we loved what you wrote there and you were randomly picked and you won. So you get the meditation album and all you need to do is email us support at theparentingjunkie.com. We will hook you right up with that album. We are so thrilled. Thank you so much to each and every one of you. I wish I could send each and every one of you a prize for sharing this out on your stories, but I'm sending you virtual unicorns and high fives. Now back to the episode. Okay, so let's talk about stress. Let's talk about the fact that stress seems to be an inevitable part of life. There seems to be an inevitable dissatisfaction. I think that's one of the ways that the Buddhist teachings talk about life itself being inherently dissatisfying, something having pain and frustration built into it. Even though we can create the life that we love and a job that we love and family life that is built on peace and presence and all of the good things, there is still always going to be pain because there is death, because there are, you know, different emotions that come up just like weather um, that feel good or don't feel good because we have a lot of embedded thoughts that haven't been deconstructed and we're not Zen all of the time and a lot of things hurt. A lot of things are painful. A lot of things are difficult. A lot of things don't go the way that we want. However you choose to look at it and whether or not these words are the right words to use, the point I'm trying to make is that we can have a lot of success and health and happiness in our life, but everybody faces disappointment, failures, setbacks, challenges. Sometimes they're huge. Sometimes they're big losses or, you know, tragic failures or things that really feel like like we can't overcome that. And our children are going to face those as well, be them internally in their own minds and bodies and experiences, or be it externally. Things like, you know, war, climate change, natural devastations, all these different things that could really produce stress as a response. Many of us feel extremely anxious about that. And if you feel anxious about things like disaster or tragedy or any kind of trauma, right? Sexual abuse or bullying or accidents or anything that produces fear in you that your child might one day face, um, I want to just refer you back to episode number four, theparentingjunkie.com forward slash four about anxiety and how to overcome it. Um, But generally, Today, we're going to talk about how to build ourselves up in a way that we can be strong and face that stress. It's important to overcome anxiety about the stress and it's important to be able to handle stress. I recently saw, an, well, not recently, actually, it was years ago, but I saw a TED talk about stress. I'll try to link it in the show notes below. But basically, it exposed, the woman talking exposed this fantastic truth which was that stress is perceived as a bad thing. We all think, oh, I shouldn't be so stressed or I shouldn't have so much stress in my life. But that when stress isn't perceived that way, when stress is perceived as something that you can handle, as something that's just part of the challenge that you're facing, then it can actually be positive. 
And the stress that is negative is the stress that we feel powerless to. The stress that we feel is overpowering us. And if we think in our heads, this stress is making me sick, right? This, the difficult challenges and stress that I'm under is, is, is giving me cancer, then maybe it does make us sick. Maybe it is too hard. Maybe it does actually bring us down. But if we think of it as a challenge, as something that, oh yeah, I'm putting myself to the edge. I'm, I'm really pushing myself in a good way. It's stressful, but it's good. Then it does not make us sick. Then it actually makes us stronger. Then it's the idea, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But many of us, especially in American culture, I'm seeing that many of us have the idea that what doesn't kill us makes us weaker. Now, I have recently read an incredible book that anybody who's interested in this topic should definitely read. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it talks a lot about the concepts that I'm going to outline here and a lot about this idea, this fallacy that what doesn't kill us makes us weaker, right? It's the idea that the stress that we're under, it's not killing us, but it's making us weaker somehow, right? Or for our children, you know, if they've been through stress, if they're going through a hard time, say they're going through a divorce at home, or they're going through bullying, or they're going through doubt, or nightmares, or bedwetting, or someone hit them, or bit them, or called them a name, or anything that you feel that was stressful for your child. Maybe the grandparents aren't exactly perfect, and they're kind of a little bit mean, or or controlling, or maybe they're getting too many lollipops at grandma's house, or maybe they watch too much TV, and then we have this story that it makes them weaker that the things that they have had to deal with in some way make them weaker and that stress is is bad for them, right? So we we don't want our kids to be stressed because we think it makes them weaker because we think it's bad for them, right? Because we want them to have a happy, healthy life. But the problem is that when we try to protect children from stress, they become extremely fragile and any stress that they face becomes like a mountain to them. It becomes bigger and scarier because they haven't had to deal with any stress. So we're going to go into this in a little bit of a deeper way and in a very actionable way. What are things that our children can do in their lives? What can we make sure to help them to learn to actually handle stress? Now, if you want the show notes, any books that I mention, I will put over at theparentingjunkie.com forward slash 10. You can find the show notes there. Now, we've all heard stories, or maybe we've been these children, or maybe we've seen these children, of children who have a lot of stress in their childhood. I mean, too much stress, right? Real childhood adversity. Maybe they've had death in the family, illness in the family, you know, what we tend to call broken homes, um, a lot of abuse, or maybe they've been through bad bullying at at, at school. You know, all bullying is bad, but I mean, a serious case of bullying. And maybe they've had to deal with a lot of a lot of moves like my kids have had to deal with. I wouldn't call that adversity, but it was a lot of stress. They had to move homes often, or maybe they have very, very stressed out parents or parents who are fighting or um, parents who are very stressed financially. And all these different stresses can sometimes together lead to too much stress. And here's the thing about mental health is that it is about the middle road. When you have too much stress, when you have too much trauma, we shut down. We can't process it. We don't get stronger. We do get weaker when there is too much trauma. 
and I'm saying trauma, but really I mean stress. If a child is constantly under pressure, even if it's just the pressure to perform at school, right? Pressure of homework, academic pressure, pressure that they're not doing well enough in school. I mean, we see this. We see this in um, in today's school system. We see children who are too stressed and they find ways out, right? Behaviorally, emotionally, they find ways out of the system because it's too much stress. So too much stress, not good right? Too much stress is that feeling of breaking a child, a child who can't handle it, a child who is getting scarred for life, a child who isn't supported enough to handle the levels of stress that they are facing. And even if they are supported, maybe it's just too much stress to begin with. Too much stress on any system is going to break the system, right? So that would definitely create a a sense of wounding from childhood. But what many of us listening here actually face is not a case of too much stress in childhood. What many of us face is actually too little stress, not enough stress. It's the phenomena of clearing the obstacles for the child, clearing the path for the child rather than preparing the child for the path. Are you guilty of this? I know I sometimes am. It's the phenomena of keeping saying, be careful, be careful on the playground, keep watching over our child and say, you can't do this or careful, don't do that, or you'll get hurt. It's the phenomenon of giving in when our child cries. Okay, okay, you can have the blue cup, right? Because we don't want our child to be stressed. We don't want them to be crying. We don't want them to feel big, bad, hard emotions and go through those, we want to pacify, we want to soothe, we want everything to go clearly. It's what happens when you go to another child who's not being so kind or not sharing with your child and you figure it out for them, you give them the solution, you make it all stop so that your child is happy. It's what happens when you start getting overly involved in your child's relationships with other children or with other adults to make sure that your child is treated 100% perfectly the whole time. It's what happens when you won't let anybody else watch your child because they can't do it perfectly. These are situations where we're actually avoiding any kind of stress, avoiding any kind of triggers. And like I said, mental health is about the middle path. When there is not enough stress on a system, the system weakens. Because the truth is the way we learn how to handle stress is by handling stress. And stress can be, I didn't get exactly what I wanted, or I had to follow a rule that I didn't like, or I had to wait for something that I wanted right now, or somebody said something that hurt my feelings, or any of the things that aren't comfortable for me, any of the things that stretch me out of my comfort zone. And I think that although we can absolutely develop an abundance mindset and a manifesting mindset and you are your creator and you are powerful and all of those things are great, it's also really important to be able to handle discomfort, to be able to handle things that are stressful, not hugely stressful, not too much to handle, not things that crush you, but we've got to find that middle path and definitely expose our children to many things that aren't their preference. So you might be asking yourself, how? Well, how? Am I going to do this on purpose? So let's go into some of the practical ways. Now, before we do, I just want to define some of the terms I'm using here. Okay. Um, I use the term fragile. 
So when I say something is fragile, I mean it's easily breakable. So a glass is fragile, right? If you drop it, it will smash. That's fragile. The next one is resilient, right? We often say we want resilient children. Well, resilience is the ability to withstand stress. Okay, so let's say a plastic cup is resilient. You can drop it on the floor and it's not likely to break. Another word that we use is adaptive. And adaptive is the ability to change in order to suit a new environment. So adaptive is when I go to a new school and I can figure myself out and change my behaviors to suit that environment. And lastly, anti-fragile is... I guess a kind of new concept developed by Professor Nassim Nicholas Taleb, or it was new to me, but he wrote about it in his book, Anti-Fragile. And it's explored in depth in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And anti-fragility, according to Wikipedia, is the property of systems that increase in capability, resilience, or robustness as a result of stresses, shock, volatility, noise, mistakes, faults, attacks, or failures. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, if you think of something like muscle, okay, muscles in our body, they are anti-fragile. If you drop them, they don't break. (laughs) They're not fragile, right? But they're more than not fragile. If you don't put stress on them, if you don't use your muscles, they actually atrophy. In other words, they actually need stress. They need challenge. They need that kind of pushback on them in order to develop to their fullest potential and in order to stay healthy. Anti-fragility isn't just resiliency. It isn't just adaptability. It's actually a system that gets stronger in the face of adversity and shocks and frustration and noise and mistakes and all of those things. So if you think about a little child who's just being called stupid, if you're thinking of that child as fragile, and you're being overprotective as a parent, then you stop the other kid from calling them stupid. You want to end that stress because you think it will break the child. If you think of that child as resilient, you can simply say, well, they can withstand it. Yes, it's unpleasant, like the plastic cup dropping. It's not good for the child to be called stupid, but they won't break. If you think of them as anti-fragile, you realize that when someone calls them stupid, they could actually get stronger from that. It's not just that words won't ever hurt them, it's actually that they can become emotionally stronger, more resilient, more robust, right? They can actually increase their capabilities because they have faced that, gone through that and succeeded and managed. Right? Because they were under a little bit of stress, they were in an, an uncomfortable situation, but they pushed through it and they learned to see themselves not as stupid and to understand that other people can say things and they don't have to take it on and they don't have to um, believe everything everybody else says. There are so many different ways that they can grow from that, right? They can grow in empathy, learning not to call other people stupid because they've experienced that and it's hurt, right? So you see how anti-fragility can be applied there. So kids are anti-fragile. And if you don't take them to the gym, if you don't let them experience their own levels of stress in an appropriate way in their lives, then they atrophy, then they become weak, then they don't have any muscle tone, and I mean emotional muscle tone as well, because they haven't challenged their bodies, challenged their feelings. All of this relates both to the physical and to the emotional. I hope that's clear.
So I'm going to go into some practical ways that I plan to allow my children to experience some levels of stress or more, let's put it more like this, areas that I don't want to overprotect my children. Okay. I, I, I realize that I might be driven to, I might have that urge. But these are the types of things that I'm going to try and look the other way try not to do it, try not to overprotect and jump in and save because I'm going to try to allow them to develop their own sense of robustness in this case. Okay, so the first one is not protecting my kids from information. I am of the belief that when a child asks for information, when a child is exposed to information, then they deserve to hear the truth. I've kind of outlined this in my video about how to talk to kids about sex in my video, how to talk to kids about Santa Claus. But basically, I would not sit them in front of a news cycle 24-7. I would not expose them to porn. I would not expose them to any kind of extreme levels of information that are violent or, you know, lots of sexual content or that type of thing. But I would not overprotect them from content. Now, this is very delicate, I realize, and everybody is going to have to apply this in a way that suits their unique child and their unique culture, okay? But I want to give you some examples of this, okay? I'm certainly not saying expose your kids to violence. I'm certainly not saying expose them to any kind of sexual content. That is not what I'm trying to say. But I'm also trying to say don't overprotect them from it, okay? It's this kind of nuanced, middle-of-the-road approach in all of these points. But I want you to just question, is there such a thing as too much protection? For me, the answer is yes. There is such a thing. If I won't tell my kids the truth when they ask me things about war, about death, about money, about sex, about family, about politics, if they ask me questions, you know, they hear something, they, they, they've heard something about it, and I don't give them the true answer, then I am creating a situation where they think that information is dangerous. They think that they can't handle the truth. And I believe that they can. I believe that they can handle things that are complicated, obviously in an age-appropriate way, obviously in a way that is appropriate to your unique child. No one can give you the answer to that. That's you and your child and a bit of trial and error. But the idea that many of us grew up with that we shouldn't be told about certain things or when we are trying to find out the truth about how babies are made or you know what happens after you die or uh, how people make money or that kind of thing, if we're not supposed to be told the truth about that, then there's the sense that information is somehow dangerous to me, that I'm somehow not safe. And I would be extremely cautious using the terminology of safety, just in general, because as they outlined in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, there has been something called a concept creep when it comes to safety. A concept creep means that safety used to mean one thing, and now it means many other things too. Safety used to mean that your body was safe that you weren't getting physically hurt. But today, safety just has become so all-encompassing and used in so many places that we can say, you know, my child doesn't feel safe when someone else doesn't share with them or when someone calls them a name. Well, no, they're still safe. That's just not a pleasant thing for them to experience, but that's okay. And that's part of what I'm trying to say here is that experiencing those levels of stress, those kind of minor stresses throughout childhood, I think is a very positive thing. And I think it's designed that way because we want to practice childhood, play, all of that stuff. It's all about practicing. 
It's all about learning and growing, right? Just as a baby practices to walk and they keep falling over and they can't learn to walk without taking that risk and without falling over. It cannot happen. So too with every other thing, social skills, emotional skills, academic skills, intellectual skills, all of the different skills need to be allowed to be practiced in a way where the child can fall over a little bit, can get a little bit bruised, not breaking any bones, but a little bit bruised is okay. So information, I'll give you an example. My son was two years old and my mother is an artist and she was doing a, like a, an installation using a skeleton. And we were sitting in their home and the skeleton was in the corner of the room, big skeleton. And my son looked at it with wide eyes. And my dad said, oh, come, I'll take him out of this room. He doesn't want to see that. He's afraid. And I said, no, wait, let's see. And I sat with him and I said, yeah, you're afraid. Do you want me to take you to see it? And I took him over to the skeleton and he was a little bit uncomfortable. He clutched me a little bit tight, but he wasn't screaming or in, you know, pain. He was just a bit uncomfortable about the skeleton. And we went to it and I touched the skeleton. It was a fake skeleton, by the way. I touched it and he decided he wanted to touch it too. And we just kind of stood there and I stayed with him in that discomfort for a while. And he overcame that fear. Now, if, you know, I'd have, I'd have taken my father's, you know, sweet offer to take him out of the room to protect him from that fear, what message would my child have gotten? That you can't handle the fear? That the skeleton is in fact dangerous? That fear is something that you need to run away from? those might have been the messages. And so this isn't always the right idea. I'm not saying expose your kids to scary movies and let them handle their nightmares. I'm saying middle of the road, when there are some things that your child is uncomfortable with, sometimes it's worth staying there. I'll give you another example from this week. My son said to me, I know the F word. And I was very surprised. And I said, oh yeah, which F word? And he said, I can't even say it, it's so bad. And I said, well, okay, you don't have to say it, but if you want to tell me, that's fine. And he said, it starts with far. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, yes, all right. Who told you that? And his friend had told him the S word. Okay, it happened. And I was just very nonchalant about it. And I said, yeah, that's a rude word. Okay, fine. And then his little brother, who's five, said, what word, what word? I want to know, why know? I want to know. So my son said, I can't tell you. It's so bad. I can't tell you. And he said, no, tell me, tell me, tell me. So I said, hey, I'll tell you. And I told him the word. I said the F word. And he said, oh, and I said, yeah, it's a rude word. We don't say it. Oh, I don't want you to say it. And, um, and that was that. Now, if I'd have said, you know, you can't hear that word. It's a terrible word, etc. How much danger and intrigue, by the way, would I have created around that word? Instead, I just said, yep, this is the word. And had they asked me what it meant, I probably would have tell, told them too, because my children know what sex is and I could have explained that to them. And I just believe in giving true answers in a very, very nonchalant way and not creating this idea that information is something you need to be protected from. And this goes for fairy tales too. You know, all of our fairy tales are these watered down versions of the original fairy tales. I'm on the fence about that. I have to say, I don't think it's so good that all of our stories are so sweet and gentle. I think it's okay for that to be one of the places where we kind of hear a little bit more about violence or about gory details, because it's on, it's on kids' minds 
that they are exposed to these things in kind of flashes here and there, but they never get to truly kind of hear about them, read about them, talk about them with adults. And I think that maybe, maybe fairy tales and storytelling is a good place to explore themes that feel a little bit more dangerous. I'm not saying read them very scary stories, but I am saying don't overprotect them from information. Number two, don't protect your kids from social discomfort. Okay, we've already said the idea of someone calling them stupid or someone excluding them, someone not sharing with them, someone saying, I'm not your friend. Our urge, especially in our culture, is to rush to the other parents and say, can you include my child? Can you tell your child to be nicer to my child? Hey, you've got to share. Hey, you've got to be friends. Hey, you mustn't call him that, etc." And I think it's worth taking a step back there. It's worth taking a step back and realizing that childhood is the place that we manage these discomforts, that we learn about them, that we experience them for the first time. So childhood is the perfect place to experience all these little setbacks that we have with other people, when misunderstandings and not wanting to play together and not treating each other so nicely or kindly or even physical squabbles that might happen, in which case, yes, we do need to protect them from getting physically hurt. Absolutely. And we need to protect other children from being physically hurt by ours. But we need to allow them social discomfort. We need to allow it to happen that, yeah, we didn't quite get along in that play date. Or yeah, it takes a little bit of time to get into this group of friends or whatever it is. It needs to be something that children experience on their own skin. And Our job is to support them through that, but not to stop it from happening. And I think that we can remember that childhood is a low stakes time, right? It's not like they're losing their job and their livelihood if they and their friend don't speak for a couple of days. It's not like a divorce or, you know, it's not the same stakes that happen in adulthood. So it's better for them to learn in a smaller way, in a calmer way, even though it feels big to them in childhood than it would be to have this perfectly orchestrated childhood where my parent clears all the obstacles from my path and then suddenly I get to adulthood and I'm like, what? Not everybody does exactly what I want all of the time? How am I going to handle this? We want our children to experience handling that in their childhood. Number three is don't protect your child from risks. You know, this is many, many episodes in and of itself, and I highly recommend Lenore Skenazi's work on this. She wrote the book Free Range Kids, and I, I can't say enough how important it is for children to be allowed to take risks and for us to manage our fears in this regard, for us not to go to the worst case scenario in our minds. Recently, my family went to Playground. It's called Playground on Governor's Island in New York, and it's a junkyard, and adults are not allowed in, and children go in and use hammers and nails and saws and lots of different junk and dangerous bits of splintered wood, and it it looks like Lord of the Flies enacted. Um, And my husband was Uh, in Yiddish, they say, on spilkers. He was very nervous, that means. He was very agitated and concerned. He's a doctor. And he just kept envisioning worst-case scenarios. And I was just spending the entire time kind of soothing my husband and saying, it's okay, look away and let them play. Let them play with the hammers and nails. Let them play with the other children and do the dangerous things and climb to high heights. Can I just say, my kids built a... Omega, like a zip line thing, a little one, with a bunch of other kids that they hadn't met yet. And they had the best time. 
And yeah, something could have happened. Someone could have gotten hurt, but I wouldn't have kicked myself and said that was irresponsible because that's life. And I think the best way to learn to use a hammer and nail correctly is by using a hammer and nail. And then, you know, you don't bash your finger twice. You get hurt hurt once and the next time you do it correctly. And so, of course, this doesn't apply to everything. There are some risks that are too risky. We can't let our children take them. You know, I don't suggest that anyone learn what it's like to go through a car accident without a seatbelt on. Yes, we wear helmets. Yes, we, you know, we take safety precautions. But doing some risky things like cooking with fire, like using real knives when you cut vegetables, real tools, metal tools, in order to build certain things, climbing to high heights, you know, going fast, all sorts of things like that. These are things that are important to learn how to do on our own skin, of course, in an age-appropriate way. But think about the things that you were allowed to do as a kid or that your grandparents were allowed to do as a kid or needed to do as a kid for their livelihood, perhaps. And think how far we've come into this plastic overprotected world, it becomes so boring to the point that kids actually seek risk in truly dangerous ways. Kids who are allowed to take some risks don't become risk seekers because they understand how to manage it. So overprotection can actually be dangerous in that sense, in the sense that our kids don't know what to do. If something is a bit difficult, they become fragile. They can't respond well to stress, but also in the sense that they might seek it out almost as an act of rebellion because they've been too coddled. So not protecting our kids from risks. The next one is not protecting them from relationships with other adults. Here's another one where parents rush to step in, you know, to tell the teacher how to treat the child, tell the grandparents, tell other caregivers, other babysitters. And then there's this illusion of control and this illusion of perfection. Like I know how to treat my child. And if the grandma says something or does something that's wrong, then I need to protect my child from that. And how awful is that? Look, it's not fun to watch your kid being treated in a way that you don't like. It's not fun when we don't believe in praise, but the teacher keeps handing out stickers and lollipops and we don't believe in sugar and she's giving, you know, treats and we don't want food to become a reward. It's not fun when a grandparent sits a child in front of a screen for two hours and we don't think it's a good idea. Or when a grandparent tells a kid, you know, something that we dislike, like, give me a hug and, uh, you know, or I'll be sad. I don't know. There are lots of things that I, you know, I have something to say about these things. It's not ideal. It's not what I prefer. But I try to monitor myself from being over-controlling and instead look at many of these situations as ways for my children to learn adaptation, to learn to handle different styles, different people, different relationships with the realization that, yes, ultimately, I think my relationship is probably at the moment, while they're young, the most meaningful in their lives. But, you know, we have to allow our children to have relationships with other people. We have to allow them to know that they can handle it. They can handle different relationships and different relationship styles. The next one is don't protect them from feelings. Again, each one of these could be a whole episode in and of itself. But the point here is that we need to understand and have our children understand that it's okay for them to feel sad, mad, angry, frustrated, disappointed, irritated, agitated, bored, all of the quote-unquote negative feelings are okay to experience. And more than that is the understanding that feelings pass and that we don't have to rush 
to pacify them and stop them from feeling the way they feel. I think that this begins in babyhood. You know, it even begins with a newborn. Of course, with a newborn, we want to try and respond to all of their cries that are communicative, where we understand, like if you understand that there's a wet diaper, that the baby's tired, hungry, uncomfortable, wants to be held, etc. Yes, we have to answer all basic needs always, but we also have to allow for expression of emotion. Sometimes it's just energy, right? I had this with my last child. He would sometimes just cry even in my arms for a long time and it passed. It always passed in the end, but sometimes it took time. And especially when it becomes the toddler years and these have become tantrums, we can feel an overwhelming urge to shush the child, to shut them up, to stop them crying, to make them stop whining. And I understand that. And if it's for you because you can't hear it, that's that's one thing. I get it. I certainly do that. It's not ideal, but I do it. But what's more important to realize is that for them, it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to feel that way. We don't have to rush to solve the problem. It's okay to feel that your feelings got hurt by your sibling. It's okay to feel that you didn't like what was served for dinner or that you didn't enjoy going to school and being dropped off or that you wanted your parent to hold you and they couldn't. And that's okay. It's okay. Those are things you can handle. It's okay to handle the fact that you currently feel less than amazing or really kind of bad. That's okay. So just understanding that you don't need to protect them from their feelings. You don't need to tell them not to cry. You don't need to tell them not to be sad or that there's no no reason to be angry or that there's no reason to be um, frustrated or that they can do it and they shouldn't, you know, get annoyed because annoyed, angry, sad feelings are okay. They're allowed. Not all of the actions that might accompany them are going to be allowed, right? I'm not going to let you hit or destroy property, but I will let you feel that way. And I might want my child to be quiet because it's annoying to hear and I can't stand it anymore. Okay. But the overall sense, the overall approach throughout childhood needs to be that, yeah, sometimes we don't feel our best and that's okay too. And we can handle that. I don't need to protect you from that. So I don't need to rush to pacify you when you're crying. And I think it's a good exercise for us all to learn to wait for our child to stop crying before we take action. not always okay of course if a child's crying because they got hurt we want to you know hold them hug them if their child if they're crying because they need something we want to provide that need but if there's kind of like a tantrum like an expression of emotion or a meltdown like an overwhelmed meltdown it's okay to simply wait and realize that feelings do pass once they're expressed or once the needs are met so just letting those feelings pass and getting comfortable with that teaches our child that they can handle that stress, that that stress doesn't kill them and that they come through it and they feel fine on the other side. The next one is not protecting our children from responsibility. I think that very often parents come to me and say, oh, I can't get my child to clean their room or I can't get my child to brush their teeth or I can't get my child to remember their jacket. And of course, again, all of these things depend on the age and stage and the you know, what's appropriate in your home. But just generally speaking, I want you to consider that having responsibility as a child, having responsibility for my body, for my health, for keeping myself healthy, all of that kind of stuff, it's very, very healthy. It's very good for children to be responsible for property. And if they lose that property, then it gets lost and that's it. No one's replacing it for them. You know, I don't mean their winter coat that they need, but you know, if your child loses their favorite Lego piece, then okay. They lost it. And that's a good form of stress to experience. That's a good situation. It's a great learning situation, right? 
Well, no problem. You can save up your money to buy another one, but I'm not rushing to buy it for you. Right. So the idea of not protecting them and realizing that as soon as they can take on responsibility, as soon as they're physically capable of, you know, brushing their teeth or clearing their plate or putting their clothes in the laundry or folding their clothes back into the cupboard, they should be. It's a great feeling of accomplishment. It's a great feeling of success when children can do those things for themselves. And the best time to start is toddlerhood because toddlers want to do those things. Toddlers are saying, me, 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 mine, mine, mine. I do it by myself. Perfect. Great. And what that demands is a little bit of patience from us parents to allow them to do it by themselves. Allow your child to take on as much responsibility as they're capable of as early as they can. I think it's a wonderful way of learning to deal with real life needs, with real stress, such as, oh, I must remember to bring my, whatever it is, my homework, my coat, my lunch, etc. The next one is to share stories, stories, reading stories, and I think particularly biographies. And there are now so many amazing biographies um, available for children, real stories. I love the Who Is series. My children listen to that on Audible. I will link to that here in the show notes, theparentingjunkie.com forward slash 10, just by the way. Um, But I love the Who Is series. And then I love a lot of other biographies, but there are biographies about so many different inspiring people right? And I can link to a few favorites, but really anyone who you think is a meaningful role model is worth reading to your children about, worth watching the movie or reading the story or just telling them, telling them about that person's story so that they can learn about other people's struggles and other people's perspectives. When we learn to take other people's perspectives, when we learn about other people's very, very difficult or even dire straight situations that they've been through, we can develop some of that anti-fragility. We can kind of grab it from them a little bit, be inspired by them, and it can make us stronger too. Because we see that people who have been incredibly successful or incredibly inspiring in some way have always overcome big adversity. They've always overcome big challenges. That's how they became the great leaders that they became. And so if you're reading to them about you know, amazing sports players or people who have been instrumental in all sorts of social justice arenas or people who have uh, been incredible entrepreneurs who have changed the world or big leaders who have changed the face of countries or of nations or of religions. These are wonderful stories to learn, to develop our own capacity to withstand stress, especially if you're able to tell them the backstory, especially if you're able to tell them where those people came from. It's almost always from humble beginnings or from major life crises and challenges. So just learning that the difficult things actually make us stronger is something that is wonderful to learn through other people's stories. And finally, my last point that I want to offer here is to label your children as strong, to label them as resilient. I think labeling is disabling. I have a whole video about that. We don't want to typically label our children, but We do want to influence their self-talk in the sense that we see them as strong individuals. We see them as capable. We don't want to label them as, oh, you're needy, you need me, you're too little, you can't do it, you know, it's hard for you, all of that kind of stuff. Instead, we want to say things like being realistic, okay, not inflating them, not you're so special and you can do anything and you're, you're the strongest in the world and you're the best. It's not a competitive type of language. We're not trying to tell them that they're better than others or stronger than others. And we're not trying to tell them that they're stronger than they they are. If your child says, I can't do it, they really can't do it in that moment. But 
Labeling them as strong in that case might mean, okay, I see that you feel that you can't do it yet. Of course you can't do it yet. You haven't tried or you haven't learned how, or you've only tried a few times. No one can do it when they've only tried a few times. It takes many times, right? Remember that time when you were trying to learn to ride your bike? Could you do it the first time you got on your bike? No, of course not. We have to try and fall a little bit. Look at your baby brother. You see how he's learning to walk? You think he can just get up and walk? No, that's not how we manage to learn to do things. We fall and we try again and we try again. And in the end, it becomes a second nature and you can do it. So just the idea that you can't do it yet doesn't mean that you won't do it. And pointing out all of the ways that you have done things in the past. Remember when you thought you didn't like broccoli, but then you tried it three different times and at the end you actually kind of liked it? Or even you didn't like it, but you tried and that was really cool of you, right? The idea that we can figure things out together, the idea that you can do hard things. So if your child says it's too hard, yes, it is hard. I'm not going to come and say, no, it's easy. It's easy. Because that's really annoying when someone finds something hard and you say it's easy. But if I say it is hard, but you can do hard things, it is hard and you can do hard things. You do hard things all the time. You figure things out with your friends when it's not going well. You take your plate from the table to the kitchen. You go up the stairs to get the pacifier for your baby brother. You buckle yourself in in the car. You uh, learn to tie your shoelaces. You have done so many hard things, and this is just the next hard thing that you're going to learn how to do. I teach my kids that you can be afraid, and you can do it anyway. It's the idea of feel the fear and do it anyway. The idea of things are hard and you can still do them. So I hope what's coming through is a sense of high expectations of our children, high demands, and high belief and high support for them and in them. So yes, I think you can face stress. And yes, I expect you to overcome it. And yes, I expect you to do hard things and to take responsibility and to handle your information and your conflict and your relationships with others and to handle taking other people's perspectives and difficult stories, difficult truths. I expect you to be able to handle all of those things, but also I will support you through it and I will be there with you and I will be holding your hand. So I think that is the essence of peaceful parenting. Anyone who's taken my Empathic Limits course will recognize this. It's the high expectations and high support. So I hope that when you do this, you don't protect your kids from information or from social discomfort or from risks or from relationships with adults or from their feelings or from their responsibilities. And when you share stories and perspectives of other people's struggles and triumphs and you label your children as strong and capable and teach them that they can do hard things, then you will feel that you have equipped your child to face the world. You will equip your child to feel capable, resilient, adaptable, and anti-fragile. Thanks for listening to the Parenting Junkie Show. If this was helpful for you, I would be so appreciative if you would subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribing to the show means you'll get the bonus episodes that I only deliver here. And when you rate and review the show, it helps other parents find it. I'll be shouting out some of my favorite reviews in upcoming episodes and would love to spotlight you. And remember, keep on loving parenting and parenting from love. Namaste.